If you have your Bibles, please take it up and and follow along with me as I read our scripture day today. We are in the book of Revelation. We are in Revelation chapter 14. We're going to look at the first five verses of Revelation 14 as we continue our walk, not only through the book of Revelation, but most immediately through this fourth vision that began for us in chapter 12 with accounts of the dragon's attacks against the church and now is coming back to remind us of God's sovereignty over all that more explicitly than it has already been reminded and to teach us um, about while the beast marks his followers that God seals his followers as well. And so with that in mind, let us look at and read Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse one. Then I looked and there before me was the lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and to the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Let us pray. Great God enthroned above, you have exercised your divine power in such a way that everything we need to live a godly life comes to us through your son. Your son is glorious. Your son is good. Well, the promises you have given are precious to us. And so help and lead us to live in those promises so that we may escape the corruption of our evil desires. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. As we began this fourth vision in in chapter 12 and are moving our way through chapter 12 and on to the end of 14, beginning of 15, as we transition to the fifth vision, one of the themes that we have looked at is that we make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees as we study the book of Revelation. And one of the dangers of hyper-focusing on the trees and missing the forest is that we can find find ourselves in a place of fear in a place of uh, despair as we read through some of these images and some of the prophecies that we have in the book of Revelation. I know many people that study the book of Revelation, many brothers and sisters who profess faith in Christ and in Christ alone for their salvation, and yet they read through the book of Revelation and their most desperate hope is that God takes them out of the world before they have to suffer the horrors that are given to us here. And yes, many of the visions, many of the, the Im, much of the imagery in here is difficult and fearful as we read it, but God does not leave us in our fear as we read the book of Revelation. And today's passage is one of those where he shines the light away from the earth and the earth dwellers and the attacks of the beast on the church of God and, and shines that light brightly on the Lamb and the safety and the security that is in the Lamb in the midst of the difficulties of this life. And so today, as we consider these five verses, the call upon you, the call upon me, is to remember that we share in the victory of the Lord. 
And then in remembering that, avoiding despair and, and fear in this life. Jesus, through John to us, opens up with a vision of the victorious lamb. We first met the lamb back in chapter one and then again in chapter five as as he is seen enthroned above. He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is enthroned with God. He is equal with God. And and here in this passage, we see the lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, what is Mount Zion? Is this the earthly Mount Zion? Is he there in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount? Or is he in the heavenly Zion, as we are told in Hebrews 12, 22? Well, John is seeing history from the, th- the perspective of the throne room of God. And so we see this as the lamb standing right now victorious on Mount Zion, the heavenly city, the city that the author of Hebrews told us that, that Abraham awaited in faith and in trust in God. He is standing there in God's city, standing upon Mount Zion. It's a reminder for us of what Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 33, where he said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It also reminds us of the the, the solidity, the stability of the kingdom of God in contrast to the kingdom of the beasts of the dragon. Where was the last time we saw? Where was the dragon the last time we saw him? In chapter 13, verse 1, we are told, and the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. What is the seashore made of? It's made of sand. The dragon and his kingdoms are built upon a foundation of sand. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls the people to listen, and he says, make sure that you build your house upon a foundation of rock, rather than a foundation of sand. Don't be like the foolish man in the song, that that children's song that you learned when you were in Sunday school. Be like the wise man of the song who builds his house upon the sand. And when the rains come a-tumbling down, the house is safe, the house is secure. And we do that because the lamb stands upon the foundation of stone, Mount Zion, God's heavenly city while the dragon stands upon the shaky ground of sand. And we are reminded there that Jesus is victorious over Satan and his minions. We're further reminded of that if we look deeper into this and we see that the the lamb, Jesus, standing on Mount Zion is a reference to Psalm 2 and the words there. Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Remember, the first beast that the dragon calls forth represents the kingdoms of this world arrayed against Jesus and against his people, against his church. And so why do the nations conspire? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. What is God's response to the dragon and the kingdoms of this world seeking to destroy him and his church? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, on my holy hill. 
Brothers and sisters, as this world seems arrayed against the church as the attacks of the evil one, whether it comes through direct temptation or comes through the people of this world attacking the church. Brothers and sisters, your hope is in the fact that the lamb is victorious and is seated on that throne and at times standing in that throne room, sovereign over his church and sovereign over the history of the world. But notice that the lamb does not stand alone on Mount Zion. With him are 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is not the first time in the book of Revelation that we have met the 144,000. We met them first time in Revelation chapter 7, where we have that almost military census of the people of God. And there we are told that the people of God are sealed for protection by God against all the attacks of this world and the attacks of this evil one. And we look there as we compared it with the second half. John heard the numbering of the 144,000. Then he turned to see the innumerable multitude of those from every tribe, every language, every tongue, from all around the world, from every ethnicity, from every country, from every economic or social status. The people of God gathered there worshiping and praising God as he has sealed them, as he has protected them, as he has set them apart for his glorious purpose and for his peace. And we are reminded here that the seal that is written on those people is the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. Now, this is a this is a spiritual writing of a name upon our foreheads. It is a reminder that our thoughts, our actions, everything is controlled by God and and for the person, the child of God is is geared toward the glorification and lifting up and worship of God. All that we do is done in the context of God's truth. It's once again a reminder of another theme that we've seen throughout Revelation is that the people of God are 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 called to be faithful to the truth and to the teaching of God and also to be obedient to him. The thing about this seal versus the mark of the beast, which we looked at in the previous chapter, the difference in this is that this seal is permanent. Once you have been sealed by God, once you have been called out and redeemed, as we'll see here in a few moments, this seal is irrevocable. The mark of the beast can be erased and replaced by the seal of God, but once you have been sealed by God and set apart by him, you are his forever. But a little bit more about this city to bring comfort to the redeemed, to bring comfort to the children of God and the followers of the Lamb. We learn more about this city as we look at some of the Old Testament references to the city and we see some of the names that God gives to Mount Zion in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 62, 4, God calls the city of Zion, the heavenly city, he calls it, my delight is in her. Do you ever feel that God delights in you? We're really good with our salvation theology in the Reformed Church. We got number point number one down, that T, that totally depraved. Oh, woe is me, I am a sinner. We live life oftentimes according to that. But something changes in that, oh, woe is me, I am a sinner, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. You are no longer somebody who is looked upon by God as the best you can do filthy rags, but you are looked on by God as somebody who God delights in. 
as a father, he looks upon you as his dear child. And regardless of the stumblings, regardless of the difficulties, he deals with you tenderly and with delight. Later on in Isaiah 62, the city is called a city not forsaken. In a world that is hostile to the people of God, in a world where oftentimes just living in the brokenness of this world makes us feel far from God, the city you and I dwell in, the city that you and I are seated in is a city that reminds us that we are not and never will be forsaken by God. In Jeremiah three seventeen, we are reminded that this city is the throne of the Lord, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Mount Zion is where God resides and will that city will one day descend to this earth and he will live with us. Jeremiah 33, 16, the city is called the Lord is our righteousness. Thanks be to God that my righteousness is not what God judges, but he judges me according to Christ's righteousness. He judges you according to Christ's righteousness. And we will be reminded of that for eternity as we dwell in this city. Jesus has overcome the world and he stands as ruler in the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion and the redeemed of the Lord stand with him, victorious, comforted and set apart and protected in the light in the face of the enemy's attacks. In Ephesians 2, 6, Paul reminds us, Paul tells us that God has raised us. He has raised you. He has raised me up with Christ. And right now we are seated with him. You are seated with him in the heavenly places. It doesn't feel like that oftentimes, does it? As much as, the, as much as the fair reminds us of the glory of God's creation, there are things that happen at the fair that remind us as well of the difficulties of this life. Those animals that people spend so much time washing and conditioning and blow drying so the cows are fluffy. Those cows will die. Some will die of natural causes. Some will die to feed us. It's a reminder of the cycle of life. It's a reminder of the difficulty of life as those children who have put blood, sweat, and tears into the raising of those animals are weeping as they sell them. And yet, for the Christian, even living life in the difficulty of this world, you are seated right now in the heavenly place with your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are victorious. It's a, it's a reality that we hope for and, and wait for and know that we will, we will experience in its fullness of its glory in the future when Christ returns. But it is a reality for you and for me right now. We are victorious over the despair. We are victorious over the sin. We are victorious over the difficulties of living this, in this world because we are united to Christ in his death and his burial and in his resurrection. And so, brothers and sisters, as we consider the Lamb standing there upon Mount Zion, I call you to take heart and to find joy in the victory of Jesus. At the end of the passage, John gives us some of the characteristics of the people of God, the characteristics of the 144,000. What do they look like as they live life on this earth and as they live life in the presence of God into eternity? Well, first, they are redeemed. We're told in verse 3 that uh, none could learn the song, which we'll talk about in a few moments. None could learn the song except for the redeemed. And then in verse 4, we are told that they are purchased from among men. 
They are the same word purchased is the same word redeemed earlier in verse three. What does this mean? If you ever read through the book of Hosea, God uses a very vivid picture to talk about the relationship between God and his people. Hosea is called by God at the beginning of the book. He says, go to this woman named Gomer and marry her. There's a problem. Gomer has a profession that normally doesn't get married. She is a prostitute. And so Hosea goes to her. He he makes all the arrangements. He marries her. And almost immediately, Gomer goes out and continues to ply her trade, continues to do her chosen profession. And at one point in the book, Gomer finds herself enslaved by one of her customers. And God tells Hosea, gather your money. Go to the market and redeem your wife. Make a sacrifice to pay the price to free her from her slavery. As we go on in the book of Hosea, we do see that this is the picture of the relationship between God and his people. We are born enslaved to sin and God has given us his law and in giving us his law and revealing himself to us, he has shown himself as the husband of his people who are an unfaithful wife. We are we are born enslaved to sin. And and while many of us, all of us, hopefully don't commit murder or theft or things like that, each and every one of us are turned inward. We take the worship that is due to the to the sovereign, powerful creator of the universe. We take it from him and we give it to ourselves. We feed the me, me, me mentality. And even our good works oftentimes are are focused on making myself feel better, making myself look better. This inward focus works itself out in your lives as unjust anger when people break rules that they don't even know exist. It works itself out in selfishness where we seek our own comfort, our own pleasure at the expense of others. It shows itself in frustration with people as they live their lives without any concern for our comfort, for our wants and for our needs. How many of you get frustrated when somebody cuts you off in traffic? You know why you get frustrated when somebody cuts you off in traffic? Because how dare they? How dare they take the space that I'm in? Don't they know I'm in a hurry? Don't they know how important I am? We are enslaved to this me, me, me mentality and the dragon knows it. All of his minions know it and he does everything he can to turn us away from that, thereby enmeshing us and enslaving us more and more to our sins. And yet God didn't leave us there. His justice, his goodness, his holiness demands that that false worship be punished. And he sent Jesus, the lamb, to take away the sin of the world and to pay the price for your false worship. The price that you can't afford to pay, he paid so that you could be bought out of that slavery to sin and made a beloved child of God who stands victorious with Jesus. The first mark of the 144,000 are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Next, they are pure. Every time I think I'm getting a break from a little bit of controversy in the book of Revelation, we stumble across a verse 
And it says that these are people who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. This is not a call to deny the marriage mandate in the life of the Christian. This is not a call to eternal celibacy. Let's go back to Hosea. What was the point of that picture of Hosea and his cheating wife? The picture there was of God's people who constantly turned to idols and to false worship, being described as being adulterous to God in the midst of their idolatry. And so this purity here, while it will include sexual purity, it is a reminder that in Christ, 144,000 are those who do not worship the things of this earth, including themselves as they seek to live as God's children in this earth, in this world. They remain pure. Thirdly, they are followers. They follow the Lamb. This is an odd sentence that should really jump out to us because lambs aren't typically followed. Lambs follow the shepherd. And yet here, the lamb is the shepherd. The lamb is the great shepherd of Psalm 23 and Psalm 10. And it's a reminder that wherever the lamb goes or wherever the lamb has gone, we follow him as well. We follow the lamb as he walks through the joyous times of his life. We follow the lamb as he walks through the hard and the difficult and the persecuted times of his life. But we follow the lamb on paths of righteousness for the sake of God's glory. Sometimes those paths lead us to green pastures. Sometimes they lead us to still waters. Sometimes they lead us through the deep darkness of the valleys. And yet the lamb, the shepherd is always there. He is always near. And ultimately, where he is leading us on those paths of righteousness is to that that meal, that meal that we get a mere taste of today. And that meal, that wedding feast of the lamb that we see in Revelation 19. Fourthly, the, the, the people are marked as first fruits. The first fruits is an Old Testament sacrifice that was given at the beginning of the harvest. You brought the first of the harvest to the temple and you gave it to God as a sign, as a symbol that the harvest belonged to God and that he would bring the rest of the harvest in. He would see the harvest through and take care of his people. He would be faithful to them in the harvest. And James 1.18 tells us that all of the people of God are the first fruits in the sense that we belong to God. And he will make sure that all the promises he has given us from the beginning to the end of scripture will be yes and amen in him regardless of what life looks like here. And fifthly, they are obedient and faithful. There is no lie in their mouth. They're not just honest people, which is important, but they are not taken in. They do not embrace the false teaching and they are blameless. In other words, they are obedient to God's call upon their life to live a holy and blameless life in the power, in their union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The dragon and his beast will tempt the redeemed with false teaching, will tempt them to disobedience, and yet we are marked by faithfulness and obedience. Ephesians 5.25, it's a passage that many times we only read at weddings, and yet it speaks to this here. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the redemption. 
to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. These characteristics, oftentimes, if we take an honest stock of our life while we we are redeemed, that is an irrevocable fact. We looked at some of these others and we're like, you know, I'm oftentimes tempted and do give in to false teaching and disobedience. Rarely do I trust that God will see me all the way through and be faithful to me as a first fruit that is owned and taken care of by him. And when it comes to following a sheep, well, I'm a sheep too, and I just kind of want to go my own way. And yet Jesus, as the faithful husband to his church, is working in my life, in your life, to bring these things to fruition. They are true about you because they are true about him, and he is working to make them fully and completely true in your life as you walk, as you follow, as you are corrected, and as you are led by him. Jesus has and is working these things in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've seen the Lamb victorious. We've seen the characteristics of the redeemed. And now we see the reaction of the redeemed. So John is there. He is looking up into heaven. He sees the Lamb standing there. He sees the multitude of the redeemed standing with the Father. And then he hears. It's one of the only times in the book of Revelation that he sees before he hears. Most of the time he hears first and then sees. But what does he hear? He heard a sound like heaven from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. And as the sound resolved in his ears, he said, the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. Where have we seen harps before in Revelation? It was in that great picture of the heavenly worship in the throne room of God in chapters four and in chapters five as the angelic beings, as the redeemed of the Lord, as the rest of creation are are laid out there, seated and standing before the throne of God, offering their heavenly worship. It is the elders, it is the representatives of the church who are there with the victor's harps, playing and singing and worshiping God. Brothers and sisters, Revelation is a loud book. It is loud with the worship of the saints. It is loud with the worship of the angels. It is loud with the worship of all creation that echoes off the farthest corners of the universe, that reverberates and moves back and forth throughout all of creation as the the glory and majesty of God and his salvation swells to a crescendo and then drops off to a glorious resolution in the beauty of this symphonic chorale of worship in heaven. As we move through the book of Revelation, as we see the difficulties that the church goes through as it is attacked by the beast and by the beast minions, we wait for and we hope for that magic weapon that will once and for all defeat the beast. Number one, the beast is defeated. Number two, the weapon is there. It is your worship of the lamb. It is your worship of God. Every time we sing a song, a hymn, a spiritual song, we join our voices with the angelic choirs, with the heavenly choirs. We join our voices with all creation in making that worship loud 
in making that worship echo from the farthest corners of the universe throughout all of the cosmos, all of the known world. And the dragon hates it. He hates hearing the praises of God from the lips of God's children. We do that here. It's why we sing in our worship service. We add our voices. But I encourage you as well, as you're going throughout your week, know that when life is difficult and you hear one of those hymns or psalms or spiritual songs, that it just brings a a light to your soul and, and a hum to your lips, that that worship is being joined in to the heavenly worship that echoes throughout the earth. We are, we are worshiping beings. And as the redeemed people, our worship is tuned and turned to the triune God who is sovereign upon his throne. So sing your amazing graces. Sing your Bible songs. Sing your, 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 your songs of worship and praise that lift your heart. Not, not songs of worship and praise that say, oh God, you make me feel good but songs of worship and praise that say, oh God, I lift my heart to you for what you have done. Because you are glorious above. We live victorious. I think one of the the best things I ever heard about the worship was a, a, a Salvation Army commercial that came out around Christmas, I don't know, years ago, back when I still had cable, so it had to be at least 10 years ago. And they started out with Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Except instead of saying wretch, they they had a string of people who said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound who saved a thief, murderer, liar, addict, adulterer. Fill in the blank with your sin like me. When we worship God, It is a strength to us and a blow to the devil as we walk this earth and worship the victorious Christ. So we've seen Christ victorious with the victorious saints around him. We have seen what the life of the saints look like. And we have seen that worship is one of the most effective tools in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. Band of Brothers was an HBO series that came out probably close to 15 or 20 years ago now. It was based on a book by Stephen Ambrose, and it's the account of Easy Company. They were American Army unit during World War II. They were paratroopers, and they, they, they landed behind enemy lines during the D-Day invasion to kind of meet in the middle with um, uh, the, the forces that were landing on the, on the seashore. In addition to D-Day, they fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and ultimately they made their way to Berchtesgaden, Germany, where Hitler's summer house was, and they captured it once and for all. And as you watch the series or read the book, there's almost a feel as you go through it that even though life is still intense and dangerous for Easy Company as they're making their way through, that intensity and danger is experienced in a greater sense of victory the longer that they are in Europe. Brothers and sisters, that is how you live. Life in this world is intense and dangerous. Just in a normal day in this world, we struggle with falls. We struggle with cancer. We struggle with pain 
and aging and all the normal evils of living in a broken world make life intense and dangerous. But then you throw on top of that, you compound that intensity and that danger with the attacks of the devil and his monstrous minions against the church and against the Christians. Brothers and sisters, you and I live that intensity and that danger as victors, victors in Christ. Take comfort in the victory of the lamb. And in that victory, do not despair. Seek to live out the truth that is yours, the truth of the holiness of the redeemed. And take comfort for the land reigns on Mount Zion and that reign will never end. And you are sealed and protected as the children of the father, the sheep of his pasture. Let us pray. Great God and Father above, we do thank you for these words of peace in the midst of danger. Fill us with the victory that is ours in Christ as we are united to him. Fill us with the joy of the knowledge that we are redeemed. And help us to walk well before you, faithful and obedient to your truth and to your law. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, uh, don't forget we have refreshments downstairs. And also take this blessing upon you in your work, in your family, and in your play. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.